0: Well, we're going to invite uh, our panel up uh, at this point in time, Matt, and I'm going to uh, just set the stage for us a little bit. We've got already text coming in. I've, my phone has been going crazy during the whole uh, music time. So this is good. Uh, and uh, this morning, what we're going to be doing is it's called Hot Seat Sunday. It's a, a time for you to ask questions. Um, we're going to try to answer as many as we can. And, uh, and uh, really, we're going to... Say, sort of lean, I would say, a little bit into some Holy Spirit questions if those come in, but we're going we're gonna to cover a spectrum of questions and uh, there's a text number that we're going to keep up here for most of the, the time that you can... Send in that text. If you want to have a Bible, we're going to be uh, delving into, I'm sure, I hope, uh, we're talking about the Bible today in these answers. So if you do want a Bible, please put up your hand and you can uh, sort of follow along as we, as we talk. Our Frontlines team will bring that up at this point in time. Matt, why don't you introduce and I'll set up and get ready for the first question. Why don't you introduce Dr. Stan?
1: All right. Well, on my far right, I'm just kidding, right here beside me is uh, Dr. Stan Fowler and Dr. Fowler is a professor at Heritage Bible College in Cambridge, and uh, has also spent a number of years in ministry. You were mentioning that there was eight years specifically in Bloor uh, West Village neighborhood in Toronto, and so we're just really excited and blessed to have him with us today. His wife Donna is also joining us. Uh, they're part of Grandview Baptist Church, which is a church uh, in Kitchener that actually was a huge supporter financially and prayerfully uh, at the beginning of the launching of, of this church. So, we're so thankful for them for the ministry of Grandview. But, very, very blessed today. And hopefully, many of our questions will be answered by Dr. Fowler, as he is a real blessing for us to have and to have access to him in this way. So, if we all just want to just clap and thank Dr. Fowler for joining us today, that would be great. And of course, if you are interested in pursuing future education, taking spe- specifically courses uh, that can train you up in uh, biblical knowledge, or even how the Christian faith applies to life, I'd encourage you to talk to Dr. Fowler afterwards, uh, and he can fill you in about maybe getting connected at Heritage, it's so close, and taking a course here and there, or uh, or entering into full-time study, I'm sure he'd love to fill you in on that as well.
0: Okay, uh, first question. Uh, We're going to tackle today's second one, Uh, the second one on the list, Cam. Uh, Scripture seems to be clear about the specific work of God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. How would you articulate the specific work of God the Father? Um, So we're going to get to the Spirit, but let's talk about the Trinity for a moment and uh, talk a little bit about the specific work of God the Father. That was one of the questions that came in today.
2: Well, that's a really good question, actually. Um, many of the biblical texts that simply talk about God as, as such are, are pretty clearly talking about specifically the work of the Father. So when we have biblical texts that talk about things like um, the kingdom of God and Christ, we're talking about two persons of the Trinity, but the term God obviously describes the Father there. So it, it's, in some ways it's difficult to separate out the specific works of the Father because so often uh, those are described simply with the, the general name, God. But it looks as if um, the, the Father is the one who purposes, creation, carries it out, um, the purposes the redemption of sinners and, um, in some ways serves as, you might say, the first among equals of the Trinity in planning that work and, and sending the Son and the Spirit to, to make it all real in history. So in terms of redemption, the Father purposes it. The, the Son becomes incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth and vicariously obeys the will of the Father, dies to atone for our sins, is raised from the dead. The Spirit is sent um, by the Father and Son to to make us aware of our need and of God's provision and to draw us to himself. So uh, now some of you are probably aware that just last year there was a kind of a brutal debate going on in cyberspace among evangelical theologians about a kind of relational order within the Trinity. And um, as Trent alluded to in his prayer, there's a sizable amount of mystery there. But it, but it does look as if in some way, the Father is, is the, the first among equals of, of the Trinity. Uh, but frankly, I, I would say in scripture, it's not always easy to parcel out the works of the, of the Trinity and say, well, that is specifically of, of the Father. I should have a more profound answer since I teach systematic theology, but, <laughs> um, but there is a sizable amount of mystery there. Okay.
0: Well, let's uh, let's keep going. Uh, if you're uh, if you find your question has been asked today, and maybe you have something that you would like to follow up, uh, we probably will not get to the follow up. My guess is that you'll need to either come see if you can you can talk to us or. Uh, make sure you email uh, following the service, and we will try to uh, answer as many of these questions by email
1: as well. I would just I would just add quickly t- sure. to the end of that. Um, if you follow the story of God, uh, we clearly see God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit present at creation. Uh, and from a story of God perspective, the storyline of the scripture, you see God the Father present. Um, Sort of, if you think of the scripture as a as a drama, you kind of see him in, in Acts one and two very dominantly in the in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, though, you then see the entrance of the Son. Um, and obviously, you read the Gospels, the story of Christ. And then in uh, the epistles, you see the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And then now that's that enters into our segment of time. And then God the Father seems to enter again in Revelation. So I would say that as you're thinking about that question, the person that came from it, you can think of it in terms of. Of a drama, story of God, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and seeing the Father's dominant work in, in, in kind of his personhood in, in the Old Testament, but still as Stan engaged as uh, we think about the New Testament still there and active as a first among equals.
0: So we're gonna switch gears and, and start talking about. Um, so I grew up uh, in a Baptist church, but I would hang out in a Pentecostal youth group. And uh, all of a sudden, I go to youth group, and there was things happening there that I was not used to being uh, experiencing. Uh, I would see speaking in tongues, and we would see um, this thing called being slain in the spirit. So being slain in the spirit is sort of this manifestation of falling over falling to the ground uh, in response to the Spirit's work. Um, but the question that came in was it, around this one is what is slain in the Spirit? What's happening there in uh, maybe uh, in that strain of theology? What's happening in that spot? And is it, is it biblical? Is there, is there a spot in Scripture? Can we find that to be, to be the case? So uh, let's, let's tackle that one.
2: Actually, I think I have to go. No. <laughs> uh, um, well, that's that's a very relevant question. I I, I think we we'd probably have to say first off, if, if we're asking, is there explicit biblical language that's describing a work of the Spirit called slain in the Spirit? Uh, the answer seems to be no. We we do find um, in Scripture some places where where people encounter the Lord with powerful results that may include falling down. But, but often, that, that's uh, something like what John talks about in Revelation chapter 1, and, and it's actually a vision of the exalted Christ. It's not referred to as being slain in the Spirit. But in the absence of explicit biblical language about being slain in the Spirit, and, and given what Paul teaches in First in Corinthians 12, especially about the fact that all of us who belong to Christ have the same spirit, there's one spirit, and yet there are diverse manifestations of the spirit, probably a lot that we're going to learn about it is experiential. And, and experience around us shows that sometimes God encounters people by the spirit in powerful ways, uh, so powerful that they may fall to the floor for a time and and people who experience it uh, tend to bear witness to uh, the spirit doing a deep inner work in their life at that point. Um, what I would suggest is the um, you know being a good Baptist kid myself um, there's no reason to deny that the Spirit sometimes does that kind of powerful work. The the difficulty, it seems to me, is that sometimes the the experience becomes standardized in such a way that the anticipation is, if, if the Spirit's going to do a powerful work in your life, that's the shape it will take. Um, that kind of thing, of course, was happening um, to thousands and thousands of people back around 1994, 95, 96 in what came to be called the Toronto Blessing. Um, centered around the Toronto Airport Church. Um, I, I visited there a few times. I was at one meeting uh, hearing an explanation of it all by Randy Clark who was the preacher through whom it all began. Um, and I, could, I bear witness to friends of mine who I, who I know were powerfully affected by a work of the Spirit when they did their carpet time at the airport church. And yet, one of the things I noticed when visiting there was, um, that on the one hand, leaders of the meeting would say, now, the Spirit works sovereignly and freely, and we're not here to say how he has to do this, so it, you know, it may or may not take that physical form, and then 20 minutes later, they were speaking in ways that assumed it would take that particular physical form. So I would say um, Paul is clear that the Spirit works in diverse ways. The Spirit is free and sovereign, and we recognize that sometimes he does encounter people in a, in a way that has those powerful physical effects. But, but a powerful work of the Spirit does not necessarily relate to that. So we can accept the reality of it, Um, rejoice with those who've had positive experience of the Spirit in that way. But I would suggest, given what Paul says, we should guard against um, kind of creating a movement and standardizing the experience.
0: Let's ask uh, Matt a question just around speaking in tongues. Uh, How how do you know someone is speaking in tongues or just kind of speaking on their own? Like, what would be um, an area that, how, how would you how do you discern that? What's, what are some of the things that you uh, would be looking at?
1: Yeah, so I can't, I can't speak from personal experience. I've as, as we learned last week and has been an active part of my life in my own reading, I've, I've pursued, I think I've pursued in, in a healthy way the desire to uh, to express a, a language. Uh, tongues means languages. And so what I would say is in the scriptures, there are, there are times in Romans where um, Apostle Paul talks about kind of coming to the end of yourself uh, physically, and so therefore the spirit enters into... Um, to, Talks about groaning or a, a moaning more than you you can do yourself uh, in praying to God. So it seems that in many of the ways, some of the gifts of the Spirit are very much for the upbuilding of the church. In a private prayer language like that, it seems to be something that God is uh, bringing about by the power of His Spirit um, to encourage your own relationship with Him to the point of expressing something that you intelligibly maybe do not know but there is a there is a a, an understanding i know my, my dad has experienced this other members of my family uh and for them it has been a time of very much an encouragement in their relationship with god i think in a public gathering perspective um something like this i mean paul is quite clear In 1 Corinthians 14, around order and worship um, and how that functions here, I believe in the corporate setting, uh, one of the ways that we can discern um, is around uh, someone who at the same time of someone speaking in a tongue, someone else also um, having the revelation of knowing what that person is saying. And so then bringing it to bear in the body of Christ to give intelligible thought and interpretation to what is being said. Um, So that would be my that would be that would be my thoughts on that particular question okay
2: do I head into that one too how much time do we have no we should, we've got <laughs> um, yeah I, I'm just joking yeah um I I, th- I think I I should just add a, a bit of a qualifier with regard to the Romans 8 text and the spirit interceding for us with these unutterable groanings uh, that may or may not be a reference to enabling praying in tongues um one of the reasons why it may not be, I think, is that the the adjective that Paul uses when he wrote that in Greek is letos and and it, it the the typical verb for speaking in tongues or speaking more generally is the verb leo, So it's like the adjective negates what that verb is about. So it it may or may not be that 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 indeed. I would say the, the testimony of Christians who have experienced that kind of speaking in tongues would indicate that it it often does occur when they've come to the end of their conscious ability to um, to bring their petitions to the Lord. And, and so that may be one form it takes. Um, sometimes it may simply be the Spirit is interceding for us even though nothing comes out of our mouth. Um, if we're trying to discern whether what's going on is good or not, we probably have to look at um, the motivations for the experience and the fruit that surrounds the experience. Um, There may be times when people have uh, that sort of experience for a variety of reasons that may not be a special gift to the spirit. That doesn't make them bad, uh, but it, it might just mean that they aren't exactly that if my, if my friends of my former life in the USA knew that I was actually saying all this positively about speaking in tongues, they would say, we're glad he left the country.
0: <laughs> okay, let's, let's transition into a couple of questions around the, uh, the Trinity and uh, sort of trying to bring some clarity. In, in one of the questions was, uh, did the Trinity exist before Jesus was born? Uh, what would be, um, so before Jesus was born here on earth, did the Trinity exist?
2: I, clearly, yes. Um, you have reference to the spirit of God as early as Genesis 1-2. Um, and you, and the idea of the incarnation is that God sent into the world the one who was his one and only unique son. So, uh, what, what becomes different at, at the incarnation with Jesus is that the eternal Son of God takes on a, a human nature and becomes fully human as well as fully divine. So although the Trinity is not spelled out in, with clarity in the Old Testament, in the, the assumption of the preexistent Son and the references to the Spirit in the Old Testament would say, sure, it's an eternal reality.
0: So, an argue, just to follow that, some people might say you know, Jesus was Jesus created. Uh, is that's a, sort of one of the questions that would come out? Is was Jesus just a created being, uh, or was he fully God, fully uh, of all preexistent? Um, where would you go to in the text to answer that kind of question?
2: When you say Jesus, you mean you mean they're the the, the preexistent Son. Yes. Who became Jesus, right? Okay. Um, and, and, I mean, you know, the, that question recognizes a legitimate distinction. There, there are those on the periphery of Christian faith, Jehovah's Witnesses, who, who are modern examples of, of um, the followers of Arius in the fourth century who said that the, the Son of God was, was a created being, not fully God. But in, in a variety of ways, Scripture describes the Son as indeed fully divine. So at the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the, the Word, the Logos, clearly in that context a reference to the Son. Um, he was with God, so there's a distinction between Father and Son, and yet he, the Word was God. So to say the Word is God is to say that He is not a a created being. There are... I mean, there's a long list of other kinds of texts that in one way or another um, tell us that Christ is indeed fully God and, and not just a created being. Some of the texts explicitly use the, the, the name God to describe him. Uh, John 1 we've talked about. Hebrews 1 has a couple of such references. John 20, 28, where Thomas calls him, my Lord and my God. I think another powerful indicator of the full divinity of the Son is the fact that he's described as an object of worship, and and not simply an object of respect. And in Scripture, it's quite clear you worship only God. I, I remember the Jehovah's Witnesses haven't been at my door on a Saturday morning in a long time, but. Uh, a few years back when one appeared at the door and we were talking, I said, have you ever thought about Revelation 5 and the, and the picture of, of worship in heaven that we have there? And at the end of the chapter, we have uh, a, a vision really of the whole universe offering praise to the one who sits on the throne, God, the Father, and to the Lamb, Christ, the Son of God. One ascription of worship and praise directed to both equally. Have you ever thought about that? Doesn't that look strange if the sun is only a creature? And he said, "Never thought about that." But we haven't talked since, so I don't know where where it went. Uh, But there are various lines of evidence that would say the sun was not uh, was not a created being.
0: Any more? feel like we've got about uh, 15 minutes so I want to cover as many uh questions as we can but I don't want to sh- cut something off too short okay um so the one of the major um objections of to scriptures that for some people they read it and they 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 would say they find it um vastly patriarchal uh that they keep reading about the father uh there's a lot of uh domination of of uh of males Stories, even within, the, within it. And one of the questions was, where is the place for God the mother? Uh, and I, I want to just maybe bridge off that is like how do we talk about God in, uh, is there any scriptures that talk about God in, in feminine ways uh, or, and, or ways that would be attributed to more f- feminine attri- attributes? And then the qualifier on this one is, after all, there is no gender in the spirit realm.
2: The seat is really hot, uh, in, indeed. Um, there, there are a few, uh, I mean, the consistent biblical way of describing God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, but there are, there are some biblical texts that, that use um, a simile, use an analogy to, to describe aspects of God that are are com- uh, his compassion, etc., that are compared to a mother, but it, although there are those analogies, there is no language uh, no feminine language as such used to describe the person of god so uh, perhaps what, what what that reminds us of is is that um, although God made humans as male and female and and we are, uh, we are equally God's image, equally valuable. Uh, males and females are not, are not simply equivalent in, in every way. At, at the same time, we, we, we would have Scripture, in the way it talks about God and compares him, in some cases, aspects of him to mothers uh, using feminine imagery, It reminds us that we should guard against false kinds of of stereotyping that say, for example, well, real men are like this and not like that. Um, Real godly men ought to be compassionate as God is compassionate. Um, Real godly men have a tender side. Um, And so we, we do need to guard against stereotypes. Um, not every man has to be a rabid sports fan. I find that hard to comprehend, but you know. But I, but I, w- I would say it's true. Um, so may- maybe it's a useful reminder of that um, th- that we should we should guard against setting certain attributes off as being purely male or purely female. Maybe Matt needs to add to that.
1: Well, I. I I would just say we we live with experiences, we live with, we come into life in a question like this, uh, maybe with uh, a sort of wonder, Uh, in the shack is an example of being a recent book and film that came out displaying God the Father as uh octavia spencer i think is is the actress's name and and so we wonder why christians have had such an issue or why there has been some stir around the the issue of that image i think that to speak to that specifically i think what people have taken some some issue with in that is is with trying to display god in any physical or any way at all and you know i think of um one of the 10 Commandments. Um, do not create any false images of God Uh, can we imagine can we think of illustrations to think of describing God yes but when we create something in this way that then culture rather than going to the scriptures goes to understand who God is if it's inferred that this is what God is like then suddenly you don't go to the scriptures and defining who God is who the son is who the Holy Spirit is and so I would I would just add some comments around that as well that I don't think um, the Christian history has done a very good job representing uh, representing healthy gender roles and understanding and men have in many ways been very domineering uh, forceful uh, they've operated in their headship in a very terrible way and so as a result a lot of Um, I would say women are rightly upset with the way that men have operated. And so I would just say sorry if I can apologize in any way for white men. I'm a white middle class man. I had no say over that. Um, So sorry that that men have operated in that way, if I can even express that. And uh, all I can tell you is that Godfather, if you have a bad dad, God the Father is not a bad dad. He's a perfect father who loves you completely, and you'll never truly understand that fully, but you can trust him.
0: Let's talk about, uh, for a second, let's switch gears a little bit around. Uh, it's a very simple uh, text. In Exodus, there's a, a little passage about uh, God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So, this question... <laughs> Uh, as we read about God hardening the heart, that feels like God's driving someone away, not drawing them onto himself. Is that not outside God's character? So this is a, a challenging one That
2: Yeah, it is challenging. Um, and, and I would say anyone who, who reads biblical texts like that and, and doesn't find some questions arising in their mind probably are, are not reading thoughtfully enough obviously it raises questions um, if if God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth um, if God loves all all human beings if God loves us when we're his enemies why why would he act in a way that turned people away from himself but in the in the exodus narrative you have I mean you have a number of things going on and you have God acting in in ways that that do harden Pharaoh's heart. But that is not to say there's nothing within Pharaoh himself, which in fact is bringing about that hardness of heart. Um, to use an analogy that some have used, when, when the sun shines, as it finally has today, um, it, it melts some things and hardens some other things. And so when, when God intervened in the powerful ways he did in Egypt, Pharaoh, who, who was already prone to hard-heartedness, uh, and, and he's described as hardening himself in some of the texts, um, he, he responds to God's activity not, not in a believing way that says, wow, Yahweh is great and powerful, must be the true God. Um, his heart responds in rebellion. And, and hardening and so but, but ultimately this does push us back to mysteries about the freedom and sovereignty of God's grace why, why does God not intervene powerfully in everyone's life and efficaciously draw them to salvation well we can ask why, why did the risen Christ appear to the Pharisee Saul in the way he did and not to other Pharisees we aren't told. Uh, God is free and sovereign. God is gracious. That he intervenes to draw any of us into the sphere of salvation is, is a testimony to the wonder of his grace. And, and so when we look at a text like that, we just need to remember it, when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that's not the only way Pharaoh's hardening is described. And some of it is God's powerful activity in history, which um, sinful human beings react to negatively. And so if we ask, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes. Re- really both are at work.
1: All right. You good? I would just say maybe, I would just um, add, if if the end of all of this <laughs> existence is for the purpose of God's glory, if that's what this is all about, it's all about him, if that's the purpose of creation, if it isn't, then I think we can dabble in some other ideas. But if it is, which I would suggest it is, it's all about God's glory, is God free to do what he wants? We can, we can say, well, no, no. No. Um, push back on that if it's his glory i was, cam and i earlier were talking about the movie interstellar and at the end you get this picture of the tesseract if you've never seen interstellar you might get bored for two and a half three hours or you'll be like this is really neat i read a book called the science of interstellar after i watched it because it just fascinated me and there's this image of the tesseract which is like a 3d space time so the the character is introduced to seeing time in a new way in a 3d way we are all under the capacity of time, 24-7 time. We don't see the grander picture. You know, we think about the results of that hardening, uh, both Pharaoh's own inclination and then potentially God's intervention. Look at what happened. The Israelites are freed from slavery, da-da-da-da, you go down the line. Like, it's, it's the picture we look to as the Old Testament's image of salvation. So I would just say... Can God have his glory? And if he can, then should he be allowed to do what he wants? Let's, uh,
0: let's continue in this vein of um, salvation. And uh, there's a, a question that comes in. says, why did Jesus say that all sins and blasphemies are, uh, will be forgiven, the children of man, but those who blaspheme the spirit cannot be forgiven? So why is that? Sin unforgivable, blaspheming the Holy
2: Spirit in the Gospels where you have the- that account of jesus teaching um, it, it's in a situation in which the spirit has been uh, has been empowering Jesus for powerful miraculous manifestations that that corroborate his claims and and, and the Pharisees, the unbelieving people of Israel, are rejecting uh, the witness of the Spirit via those miraculous claims. Um, after he's done wonderful miracles, they're saying stupid things like, show us a real miracle and then we'll believe. And, and Jesus points out the, uh, the, the stupidity, really, of that. And so it, it appears that in that context that blaspheming the Spirit means rejecting the Spirit's witness to Jesus as the Messiah sent by God to be the Savior of, the, of Israel and, and indeed the world. And so rejecting the Spirit's witness to Jesus is is rejecting the one Savior whom God has appointed. That's why it, it's, it's unforgiven. Uh, that's why it means no salvation because humans are rejecting uh, the witness of the Spirit to the one Savior whom God has provided. Um, in the context, it is about the Spirit's work in bearing witness to Christ. Um, I mean, I think the, the saying is often misused by, by people who, who want to criticize those who, who they believe um, think wrongly about the work of the Holy Spirit more generally. That's not what's in view in, in Jesus' saying there.
0: Uh, this is a, uh, we only have time for one more, t- one more. but I, I think we need to ask this question mainly because we want to, I, I don't want it to seem as though we avoid questions such a, a, around same-sex marriage and, uh, and gay, uh, gay relationships and things like that. So even though this is a, one of the more challenging topics to just kind of like touch on, I, want, I really want to be clear that uh, why we're, there's a couple in here today and I don't want to just avoid them uh, and sort of answer them quietly. So the question is, it's is really one about care and ministering. And uh, so this person is asking around ministering to and sharing faith with someone who is in a same-sex marriage. So uh, if you don't believe that that's God's design for marriage, How would would a Christian uh, approach and discuss and love, uh, lovingly uh, confront, and also lovingly talk about something that that somebody's already in a same-sex marriage?
2: That's a tough one. I know. I I, I, I knew it had to come up. Uh, uh, There's a
0: couple more that uh, we'll answer.
2: It's uh, 2017, after all. Yes. Um, So I knew that would have to come up. Uh, There's a lot to say. Um, in brief here 's what I would suggest recognize that that the fundamental need of, of all human beings is a right relationship with God through christ so the, so the the most es- essential issue if if i 'm talking to people who are in a same sex marriage or same sex relationship is, is that they believe the gospel, that they acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and, and thus become willing to obey Jesus as Lord as they come to understand what Jesus' call is. So, in other words, if, if you and I brought friends, unbelieving friends who are in same-sex marriages, to accept the idea that they ought not be in a same-sex marriage and um, and then they step out of that relationship, and yet they don't step into a, a relationship with God through Christ, then, then we haven't helped them deal with their most fundamental need. So I would suggest that we, we have to um, befriend them, treat them with respect and kindness. Um, by the way, if you want biblical guidance on that, read, read through the first epistle of Peter has all kinds of, of helpful instruction about the way to relate to, to a world around us that pushes back against Christians and the gospel. And read Titus chapter 3, where Paul tells Titus how to relate to, uh, to a pagan society around him and the believers uh, on the island of Crete. Um, so love tangibly, treat kindly and respectfully, find ways to talk about Christ and the gospel, if, people become, if such people become believers in Christ, then there, there's going to be the need to talk about what it means to follow Christ obediently. Now, I'm not naively suggesting that in our ongoing conversation with those neighbors, they will never bring up the question. If they do, then that provides us the opportunity to say something like, I don't like being disagreeable, and I, I want to be a good neighbor, but candidly, my understanding of God's revelation of himself and his will in Scripture means that I can't. I can't really affirm um, a, a same-sex marriage or same-sex relationship. I, I do believe it's contrary to God's revelation of his will for our sexuality. But, but that doesn't mean that I disrespect you. doesn't mean that I don't love you and care about you. Is that awkward and tense? Sure. But that's the way it is in, in this world as it is. I
1: would just say you minister, very quickly, you minister to them in the same way you'd minister to somebody else you don't agree with. Yeah. Like, why does that have to be so different? Yeah. Like, love people. Period. Right? I just I just think, like, at the end of the day, like, we, we do such a job that we... We need to highlight this one more than others. The, the LGBTQ community is not going to like it if you don't affirm that, because to them, that's the most important thing of who they are. As followers of Christ, we realize that the most important thing of who we are is that we are made by God, that we're made in His image, that we, there we have an op- option through the Holy Spirit and, and the, through Jesus to enter into perfect relationship with Him, like, and that our identity, the most important thing about our identity is not our, our sexual preference, that sexuality is not the most important thing about you. But there's lots of people, I would say there's even people in this room here today that I don't agree with you on things related to the scriptures and related to following Jesus, but I'm going to minister to you in the same way that I'd go and minister to somebody that I don't agree with on my street.
2: Can I make one one brief final comment? I I think the, the situation provides us with an opportunity to model... Uh, for Canadians, and to say to fellow Canadians, expressing serious disagreement with one another about serious questions doesn't mean we hate each other. To, to say I disagree is not to say I hate you. In fact, you can turn it backward and say to, to some of those people, okay, you're telling me that you disagree with, with my belief about sexuality, you don't hate me, do you? Of course you don't. We, we may disagree, but that doesn't mean that we hate each other. And, and that's, that's a powerful a principle, I think, that that somehow needs to be heard so we can try to reshape the public rhetoric in Canada. Okay. Well,
0: that's uh, all the time we have for this because we, we, we do want to create space here at the end to respond uh, in... Singing and also uh, Matt, why don't you? Uh, as we, uh, why don't we pray? Thank you. Uh, so why don't we thank Dr. Stan for being with us this morning? <laughs> Just say uh, I had probably about ten, eleven courses with you over my my years, and you've been a, a gift to my life, to uh, in, in shaping in, in my uh, my heart and my 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 learning. So. Uh, Why don't you pray, uh, Matt, and then uh, lead us into uh, our response and wait our team to come up
1: Oh, heavenly father, it is uh, It is with fear and trepidation uh, that in many ways we we sit here Uh, God we can study and we can learn and we can read and we can know Lord you tell us to test the spirits Lord, I pray for each person that's here today. Lord, maybe an answer has rubbed them the wrong way based on experiences that that, that they've had. God, I pray that, um, that in this moment, Lord, that we would be drawn to a perfect God who sent the perfect Savior. God, I pray that we would be and take seriously the things, Lord, that we can find a hopeful agreement on, and, that, and that's the message of the gospel, of the good news, that, that we as sinful, broken human beings, God, are deserving of punishment and wrath, but you don't leave us to that punishment, Lord, that you provide a way out through Jesus. I thank you that that was authored before every one of our sins were committed. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, you died for us. So thank you, God, for your love, your incredible compassion and love, the message of salvation, which is the good news for this world. And God, we pray that, that, Lord, we would see people come to the knowledge that the most important relationship that they could ever have with anyone is with you, their creator. More than a relationship with another human being but that it's about union with the one that made them. So God, we thank you for this morning. Again, we, we are thankful to be in a church where we can ask these questions, that we can be open about them. But Lord, may we also, as as, as Dr. Fowler just just encouraged us, may we not, if we disagree with one another, say, now we hate each other. God, oh. My goodness, that that is being exemplified to us south of the border, but God, in many ways here in our own city. So Lord, I pray that we would lovingly disagree with one another, that we don't need to find full agreement to still believe that we are human beings made in the image of God. So may we see the humanity in other people, I pray. And if we have limited that definition of humanity to people that look like us, that, Lord, that we would submit that at your feet. We are all saved by grace. So thank you.
0: Amen.